I'm absolutely thrilled today to be with Tara Callaby, who is an author of historical and speculative fiction. She's also a PhD candidate at La Trobe University and her debut novel is called House of Longing. Welcome, Tara. Hi, great to be here. Oh, thanks for coming. The novel is set in 1895 and takes place largely in Kew Asylum and is also a lesbian romance. It's a beautiful book and it flows so well. It blends all the elements of good storytelling. So what drew you to telling this story and um, your inclusion of the protagonist, Charlotte? Okay, well, we'll start with Charlotte. And I think it was more that she actually just started speaking to me once I started dealing with the information. I knew I wanted somebody who uh, could learn with the reader, I think. And so she's quite a privileged person who ends up having some terrible things happen to her and learning a lot about herself and the world. And I think I needed somebody who started off that little bit naive for that to work. And as for the story itself, uh, well, it wasn't going to be this originally. And I started doing research into lunatic asylums and they were just so fascinating. And what I found was that you have all these records and every patient is just reduced to a few s symptoms and tiny little bits of biographical information. And I wanted to know more. And with some of them, you can find out more and so many you can't. So it's my way, I guess, of filling in the stories that aren't necessarily present there in the archives. Yeah, it's, it must have been fascinating being able to research this whole area. I, I was speaking actually to Kate Grenville a few weeks ago and she was saying that as a historical novelist, when she goes out to, to in, on site to view these places, then it, there's sort of a certain magic that happens for her um, creatively. Did you get to go to the asylum at Kew? Yes, I am lucky enough in that my father-in-law lives there. It's wow. now a housing <laughs> complex. So I've actually been a few times. I've also done a tour. They open for Melbourne Open House Day as well. So I've done done the official tour too. And I think actually being there, it's, it's such a grand building. You don't really understand how huge it is until you're there walking walking around the building and I think that just that that spatial awareness of the place is just so vital if you can get there. I mean, Melbourne's easy. So much of the history is still there out in the streets, but to get there inside the asylum and realise that it's this palatial building that at that time was run down and not so palatial necessarily to live in. Wow, okay. So very atmospheric. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And so tell me about the research sort of side of it. How long did it take for you to kind of, was it hard to find interesting parts of the research? Uh, no, the, there's just interesting parts everywhere. I, I love people's stories. So to me, pretty much you turn every page of a, a book of case notes, which are all held at the public records office in Melbourne. And every single one of them is a person's story. So mm. that's all very interesting to me. And my PhD supervisors would probably say that the trouble was getting me out of the archive <laughs> rather than getting me in there. And I think anyone who works with that kind of archival material understands just the fascination and the draw of mm. um, just these actual lives that you're seeing on paper. So the research took quite a while, but that's largely because I'm juggling the PhD at the same time. And it, 
I basically started writing the novel when it felt like it was ready to be written. So I was still doing research alongside it, but it was once I had characters speaking to me, once I felt that I had a story to tell. Awesome. So speaking about the characters you mentioned, um, was it then a case of all of these too many characters coming for you because you had so many different sort of case studies? And how did you kind of hone in on sort of one character, Charlotte, and, and, and how did you arrive at that? Was that taken from some notes? Uh, well, I think most of the characters are types of mm-hmm. patient. So you get similar patients who have similar backstories, similar experience. And I didn't want to base anything on one particular patient. I'd feel too much like I had to just do everything right for her. So it's more, you know, these are the patients who, well, I mean, um, one of one of the characters has unfortunately uh, killed her child. And unfortunately, there are quite a few patients in there who have that background. So she isn't a particular story, but she's all of those women in a way. And Charlotte, I, I guess, I, I don't want to say that I actually chose her because she sort of chose me. And I think she became someone who I guess had a lot of similar emotional, at least, experiences to me. So I could head into it, even though I can't understand how it is to be a woman living in 1895. I can understand what it's like to grieve and what it's like to grieve for your father. And I can understand what it's like to have a broken relationship. And so for me, I think it was to make sure that at least the emotion was 100% authentic. Mm, That makes sense. Very interesting. When you approach the asylum, all of the sort of history with the asylum, what about the word sort of um, hysteria? Uh, um, Mm. Was that sort of something that came up? Yes, it wasn't as much as I was expecting. I think if you go in there with a feminist background, there are certain things you expect to learn about asylums. And I was challenged constantly about it wasn't necessarily as bad all the time, but certainly there were women who were in their hysteria and what that was could change entirely according to which doctor and which period and which time. And some of them obviously did have mental health issues. Others seemed just to be rebellious. And Okay, fair. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, the world isn't made for them, so, you know, I'd rebel. No, and often it's teenage girls who are reaching that point where they realise what their life is going to be. And um, it's their way, I guess, of resisting for some of these yeah. girls. So in a way, was it sort of like a women's refuge, perhaps? Absolutely. Uh, so many cases, it really was asylum for these Mm. women, women who had uh, abusive husbands, women, elderly women who had nowhere else to go. They had somewhere to to sleep, somewhere to eat, somewhere comfortable to stay and, yeah, generally spend the rest of their lives. For other people, it was a horrible, scary place that they did not want to be. So it just depended a lot on what the situation was that they were leaving, I Mm. think. Mm. And you cover a lot of this in the story. It's a really interesting story. Would you mind reading a little piece of that for us, please, Tara? Absolutely. And this one's pri- this is taken prior to Charlotte going into the asylum. Thank you. Not a dream, a plan. It's so ridiculous that men are made as women's partners when it's their fellow women who understand them. Imagine a woman spending an afternoon choosing a dress and curling her hair, arranging herself just so to please the suitor. 
Does he notice the effort? Does he realise her fingers are burnt from the iron or that the lace on her dress is a particular sort made only in Venice and shipped here once a year? Does he value her intelligence? Or does he only care whether she can sing prettily and look nice on his arm? Women are wasted on men. A man looks at you and sees your soft hair and fine nose and thinks of how you might improve his reputation. I look at you and see your kind heart and clever mind. As Charlotte spoke, she felt Flora relax against her until she was moulded perfectly to Charlotte's side. It would require sacrifice, Charlotte said, but it would give us our freedom. Flora kissed her with a small sound of appreciation. You build such lovely sky castles. I almost believe you could make it work. Charlotte turned her head to look into Flora's eyes and found there an expression of such languid affection that Charlotte's stomach clenched. Kiss me, said Flora. Beautiful, mm. thank you. So, uh, women's desire. <laughs> it's obviously a very unexplored concept back then, mm. would you say? Oh, absolutely. There are always glimpses, of course, in the archive because we've always been here. It's oh. just, but they're the tiny, tiny, tiny little amounts and that's one of the reasons I wanted to fill that gap as well because I knew that this was was there and was happening but doctors weren't necessarily seeing it and didn't necessarily care. Yeah that's right. You mentioned just then filling that gap. I have a quote here from George Orwell who says I write because there is some lie that I want to expose, some fact to which I want to draw attention and my initial concern is to get a hearing. Is this in some way relevant to your process? Um, I don't think it could be more relevant. Honestly, I, um, it's so important to me to write about the things I'm passionate about and, and so much of that is, is silent in history. And, you know, it's important to me to write about women, to write about queer people, to write about disabled people and lower classes. And so it all gets popped into the book, um, hopefully all working together. <laughs> yeah, it does. It synthesises really well. And it and I'm not going to give away any endings, but it just it is satisfying. That's what I will say. I'm glad. It's it's that difficult thing of wanting it to be realistic for the time, but also wanting it to be satisfying for the modern audience because, you know, we want the happy ending. We want things to work out, but they need to work out as as is appropriate for the time. That's right. So you're juggling quite a lot there mm. as a writer. So What's your process as a writer? Do you, um, do you have a certain room or a certain hour of the day or what, what is it that gets you in the right place? I am very lucky now to have a study which I'll go in and I'll shut myself in and depending on my time I might just write for a few hours, I might write for the whole day. I'm quite a slow writer but I get a pretty good first draft out of it. Um, but I need the story to be practically there before I begin. So I am, I guess I, I scaffold, but I'm a bit of a pantser once it starts happening. So it all has to be inside me, ready to come out, and then it will just pour forth onto the page, hopefully make some sense, and um, hopefully we'll get to an ending at some point. <laughs> yeah, okay, you described that process really well. Did you always want to be a writer as you were growing up? I just think I always have been a writer whether I always wanted to be a published author I think that probably kicked in in my teens but I have been writing since before school and before I could write I made my mother write my mm. my poems down for me so it's just always been a part of me 
Is there something else that you're working on at this point in time? Uh, yes, I have been working on a second historical novel set in Melbourne, uh, set a few years earlier, and it centres around spiritualism, which was quite big at that time. Interesting mm. topic as well. Yeah. yeah so fascinating. Mm. I, have to, I have to be interested in yeah. what to write. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Tara. It's been an amazing um, experience having you here and reading your book was wonderful. So the book is called House of Longing and it's published by text. So next up we have Jan. With Robin and Ian. In this day with Google Maps, we can pinpoint an exact place. But before, what's your street corner in important location spot? What do you know about your corner? There's lots of history in Robin and Ian's new book, Corners of Melbourne. Welcome back, Robin. Thanks, Jan. Now, Robin, this is your eighth book, and in others you've written about a lot about Melbourne's happenings. What's so special about corners? <laughs> well, I mean, it all as you said, people pre-Google Maps, and even now, often when they'll tell you a story, when they'll relate something from their life or whatever, will use a corner as a locator and take yeah. it from there. So there's that. But, of course, people have always met at street corners, either deliberately or accidentally. Sometimes they met in a collision. Uh, mm -hmm. Often accidents happened at corners. And there's all sorts of um, civic honeypots on corners, uh, pillar boxes, um, lamp posts, what else, drinking fountains, um, horse troughs. You name it. So there were lots of things to draw people and animals to street corners. Even today in the, in the city, on the corners, although they're pretty well controlled, there's still fresh fruit stores. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the opening chapter of your book is all about orange peel. <laughs> How, why would orange peel cause a panic? <laughs> well, it did. Once a year, orange peel caused a panic in the sort of uh, middle middle years of the uh, of the second half of the 20 of the 19th century in Melbourne because oranges would come in in the late winter early spring from as I said then the South Seas Tahiti mainly and would be sold by fruit vendors uh, on street corners in Melbourne they'd park their barrows across the wide gutters and sell to people on the pavement now oranges with the I mean what a, what a perfect snack uh, given that you didn't have, you know, chips you could buy in bags or whatever. The perfect snack, it was uh, uh, it was drink and food in one and uh, it was all, you know, biodegradable. The problem was people would walk along the footpath strewing their peel as they went and there were no bins. They were meant to throw their rubbish into these wide gutters but often didn't. So when you had, as we had, uh, flagged footpaths, leather-soled shoes and you had... As the, as the meat in the sandwich, a slippery bit of peel. It was treacherous. So the newspapers, which are my big source, the newspapers would just go to town once a year, particularly the Herald, which was kind of the sensation newspaper in Melbourne, the afternoon paper, would have a thunderous campaign once a year, howling down um, orange those, those strewers of orange peel. <laughs> Women were often held to blame, um, which I think is highly improbable I think they were less likely to eat in public for a start and because life was so treacherous for them on foot anyway because they couldn't see their feet uh, at the best of times I very much doubt that they were the chief culprits. Women blamed again Robert. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned accidents of course today we constantly hear about road accidents so accidents involving horses mm -hmm. why? Oh, why not? Horses and of course 
poor pedestrians as well, well, uh, well who, were, a, yeah. who, who were always, um, I mean, we, because I don't drive, so I can say we, uh, we are always the last in the pecking order. Okay, I'll say this. All road users, I'm reading to you here from page 44, all road users had equal right of way and every intersection was a battleground. Cab drivers would approach at a fast trot and swerve their way through, scattering pedestrians before them like pigeons. So setting foot onto the road, which you would usually do at a street corner, um, setting foot onto the road was was a terrific hazard. Cab drivers in particular would shave the corners as closely as they could at speed. And there were no traffic lights, of course. There weren't even pointsmen, uh, traffic uh, police uh, minding the, the intersections. It was just, uh, you know... The, the the rule of the jungle and uh, and the, at the top of uh, you know the sort of the lines of that were were the Collingwood cab cab drivers basically and the, the horses worst. the horses really didn't there were noises <laughs> coming in there was there, there was a lot of frightened horses there were yeah and a lot of horses that were trained badly look this this horse incident introduced us to a Mr Fitzgibbon his <laughs> horse actually decided to walk him into a pub so. <laughs> The publicans took him to task and, of course, you know, he was a very... Well, tell us who Fitzgibbon was. Um, E.G. Fitzgibbon was the uh, long-time um, town clerk of Melbourne from 1856, I think, right through until the 1890s. Um, so he did a lot to shape Melbourne, but he was a very uh, proper kind of... Well, up to a point, he was a very proper kind of bloke. And, yes, he had a new horse. He'd bought it for himself uh, as a Christmas New Year present, uh, was sold the horse on the basis that it was a well-trained beast with a good reputation. What he didn't know was that his previous owner had, had shared a beer with it at every pub that he stopped at. So this horse, <laughs> he took it for a ride out to Brighton and it stopped at every pub on the way until eventually it took him straight through the doors and into yes. the pub. And of course, you know, this is an upright man being charged with perhaps you know drunkenness, oh. which oh, blighted his character. Look, this, this, this Mr Fitzgibbon, the letter written had the longest sentence, mm. 266 words, mm. one sentence. In the, news, in the newspaper, yeah, imagine that. It took nearly a whole column. They love that sort of thing, of course, because you have to fill the paper with something. But, yeah, he, he, was, he was unstoppable. His great response to that, though, which isn't in the book, somebody uh, wrote mocking him about the long sentence because I, I read it, honestly, the, the front and the rear end didn't, didn't connect. They didn't, it didn't make any sense. But, uh, but uh, his response when they wrote mocking him to the paper was the shortest letter he's ever written it was one one line and it basically said well you would know about long sentences <laughs> <laughs> so he could be very witty in the chapter called effluent <laughs> society you quote john batman this is the place for a village but why was he wrong <laughs> Well, I mean, of course he chose it because there was plenty of fresh water, the Yarra, but um, it, it flooded. I mean, oh, it flooded, Elizabeth essentially. <laughs> it, it flooded. It had Elizabeth Street as a drain going through the middle of it. And uh, it had the, lots of swamp swamplands, mm. not just in the city uh, near Batman's Hill, but uh, the suburbs, Collingwood in particular, where all those riders cabmen came from, was, you know, the whole of uh, Carlton and Fitzroy drained to the Collingwood Flats. And, and it was, you know, it was perilous to life, particularly for young children. North Melbourne had a, I can't remember now, I can't quote it off the top of my head, but they had the highest infant mortality rate, something phenomenal like 145 per thousand child died and that was because of the effluent that would drain mm -hmm. from the uh, the night soil depot which was on the current side of Parkville it all was heading downhill uh, in a sort of southwesterly direction towards the uh, the swamps yeah 
So there was the overflow, there was the cesspools that had to be emptied occasionally, the quarry holes where the bluestone was dug out in Richmond and Brunswick, the old gold mine shaft in Hoddle Street, Collingwood. Collingwood, And, And how did people use all of these holes? Well, kids used to swim in them and play in them and and walk and put a plank across the mine shaft and pretend to be blonde and the great uh, the great tightrope walker and so on so you know being a kid in melbourne in the 19th century honest to god how any of them survived i do not know this is a a quote 40 percent of inhabitants uh, were under 15 years old and the corners became the meeting place for <laughs> larrikins. The, quote, the thing about street corners was that they maximised larrikins' exposure and nuisance value while offering multiple routes of escape. Mm-hmm. And larrikin is a Melbourne word. Yeah, yeah, very local to where we're sitting right now. It was coined in, um, in Gertrude Street. Specifically at the corner of Fitzroy Street and Gertrude Street where larrikins, well, they were called colonial boys before 1870 but uh, then at that point they they took the name larrikin and they uh, used to congregate there and and they christened themselves larrikins. It came apparently from the term leery kin or leery kid, leery meaning Mm. uh, sort of street wise and knowing. So yeah, it's a a very local term and it took over the the similar terms in Sydney, uh, Adelaide and elsewhere. They soon had their own larrikins. They, as you say, they kind of dressed the part. <laughs> they hung around because they didn't have anything else to do. So I liked w- what they decided to do with um, post boxes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the post boxes, which of course were uh, an incredibly um, important fixture at street corners and were emptied multiple times a day because so many people wrote letters, not just E.G. Fitzgibbon, but people, that was of course how people communicated. So they were very important bits of infrastructure and that was reflected in the fact that if you cause damage by, say, pouring water into one or damaging any of the posts, you were liable to um, seven years in prison. Um, so, but people did behave, people took it pretty seriously until the advent of larrikins when somebody discovered the efficacy of throwing um, a cigarette end or ashing their pipe in the slot of the uh, of the of the pillar box, and uh, you know you can imagine what ensued. And yeah, there was you know public outrage. Now, back to corners. Mm, Corners of Burke and Swanson and Collins and Swanson had specific names. Poverty Point. Poverty Point. Never knew that. This This was the corner of Burke and Swanson. That's right. It's where out of work or actors and other theatre people seeking work used to uh, used to gather there, and it was in close proximity to the pub where the the theatre owners and impresarios impresarios used to go for lunch, and they would pass there, and they reckoned you know you could you could uh, cast an entire musical in ten minutes <laughs> at poverty, poverty point, point uh, <laughs> over lunchtime. So that was that was that one. Now there's a lot in here that I did know of a little bit, but I never knew about the. Bill sticking battle. Oh, bill sticking. See, there's so much of us, of Melbourne was being built, so hoardings were put mm-hmm. up for uh, protection of pedestrians. But then, what happened? Well, we're, um, we're probably all familiar with the, uh, the with the injunction: bill posters will be prosecuted. Yeah. I had no idea why that was there when I was young, but now I know. So. Every surface that was not, you know, guarded 24 hours, there was no CCTV, um, was not, wasn't guarded, was 
liberally covered in posters for usually quack cures of various sorts, but also theatrical performances, ships, um, uh, candidates for mayor, you name it, uh, you know, cough drops and so on, and, and grog, also beer and uh, rum. Uh, so, yeah, the parliament, the hoardings that were outside parliament for years uh, were just an advertising space. Likewise, around St Paul's Cathedral, it took decades to build St Paul's Cathedral, and I think I found out why, because the church was being pa- paid in those days more than a thousand pounds a year for hiring out the space on their hoardings for advertising and they had these huge hoardings and they were advertising just anything it wasn't all sort of godly products it was you know <laughs> anything yeah so um yeah melbourne was a riot of of visual noise and it's not what you imagine you imagine being very kind of stately and clean sandstone or you know whatever <laughs> granite no 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 that was fascinating that bit now, all through this book there's snippets of people and happenings mm. and i'd like Robin and Nia, to finish off with okay. just that little bit about uh, another newspaper report. All right. This was uh, this happened at the corner of Bridge Road and Griffiths Street in Richmond um, in the 1880s uh, when uh, prams were a new thing. The infant Frank O'Donnell was first thrown out of the pram, then crushed by a cast iron saucepan that also tumbled out of the perambulator. Startled by the mother's screams, a wine merchant's horse dashed forward and the wheel of the laden dray then passed over the pram which was capsized in the gutter. Not even an airbag could have saved young Frank. But lest any reader should miss the moral, a local paper spelled it out. Do not wheel perambulators with children and saucepans too near the edge of the footpaths. I'll make a note of that. (laughs) Just in case. You say that you get a lot of this information from Trove. Can you mm. just explain what that is, please? Trove Newspapers, um, fantastic resource. Tara will be well uh, aware of it, I'm sure. It's uh, a free uh, digitised repository of Australian newspapers available through the Trove portal at the National Library of Australia. It is fantastic. You can search for things, names, occurrences. So I searched for at the corner of, in inverted commas, and street, and it served me up all sorts oh. of juicy stuff. And then you went through it and made it even snappier <laughs> and juicier for us. But why, you said right at the beginning uh, of the book, 39 weeks. Why did you have to do it in 39 weeks? Well, because that was all the time I had left to me. I'd, I'd agreed to a, a, a deadline and I started off, I thought I would write it about pillar boxes because I love pillar boxes, you can tell. Uh, and then I took, so I took a wrong turn and then I had less time than I hoped to finish it. So I, I did a, a, a demonic um, search of Trove, filled the shoebox with cards and that's my method is when the shoebox is full, the book's ready to write. So that's it, 39 weeks. That's really a method. That is a method, that is my method. I stick to it. I'm thumping the table here, Jan. So much more on this. I was absolutely stunned. I did not know that the protest to reprieve Ned Kelly went to, ran to oh, thousands of people mm, came to that. Sure, sure and thing. And then 100,000 people over 15 days came to see the bodies of Burke and Wills. Mm, yeah. Oh, look, Robin and Air. You know, did I learn stuff? <laughs> well, you know, there was nothing on TV. You know I'm going to say that. <laughs> there, are, there was footnotes too with... 
you really gave us history with a smile. A street corner is more than just a place to turn. It gives a location point and becomes a meeting place. In Robin and Ear's book, we read about some of the remarkable happenings and people in Melbourne's early history, history linked to corners of Melbourne.